0: This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're finishing up the story of Hong Gildong, and you'll see how you can turn your next potluck dinner into a fantastic heist and how to deadlift 1,200 pounds. Spoiler alert, magic helps. Then, on the Creature of the Week, we'll meet Cactus Cat, who, despite a scary appearance with his armored, spiky tail and Wolverine-style bone claws, he just wants to get drunk in the desert. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 38B, Master of Two Worlds. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Previously on the podcast, we met a young man named Hong Gildong. He was born to High Minister Hong, then the third most powerful person in the kingdom of Joseon, Encompassing modern day North and South Korea, and Minister Hong's serving girl and concubine. Because of his low born status, Gildong wouldn't be able to sit for examinations to become a government official and rise to fulfill his lofty ambitions. In addition, Minister Hong loved him and his mother, which led to some jealousy from the previous senior concubine, Chirong, who conspired with three other people to kill Gildong. Weeks later, those three people were dead on the floor of Gildong's shack. Chirong was implicated and Gildong had gone into a self-imposed exile. Oh, and Gildong knows a lot of magic. High Minister Hong looked at the three headless bodies, on the floor of his son's old shack. The shack they had essentially imprisoned him in, because of a lie. A lie from the physiognomist. One of the bodies on the floor, his eldest son had told him everything, how Chong, his senior concubine, knew these three, and had been all too eager to plan Gildong's death. High Minister Hong chastised his son for being so stupid. The minister was furious, and the only thing that could slake his anger was seeing Chong dragged from the inner chamber and killed. He took a deep breath, but before his son was 10 steps away with the order, he commanded him to stop. He didn't care if Chong lived or died at this point, but he remembered a promise to his other son, Gildong. And he said, yeah, we're calling him son now. He promised Gildong that he would look after his mother. Chorong had been a well-known courtier before becoming his concubine. If he had her executed, people might start asking questions. Like, why did you have Chorong executed? This would lead to the triple murder and Gildong, who was already gone. So the punishment might fall on Gildong's mother. That's why he couldn't just have Chorong executed. Moments later, Chorong stood before him. She was someone he used to love, but he told her he was sending her far away, and if she ever uttered a word of this, he would find her, and he would kill her. He didn't look at her as she was led away in tears. He had commanded one of his manservants to take her to a faraway and desolate place and abandon her. He then went to work hiding the bodies and setting his house in order, so that no one would speak of this ever Sidebar, I don't know what the life or career path of an early modern Korean fixer looks like, but I want to read that story. I'm picturing the wolf from Pulp Fiction in 17th century Korea. Anyway, the high minister looked out his window that night, where he had last seen Gildong, and wondered where his young son was spending his first night out there in the world. Yildong rolled, no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't keep the rocks from jutting into his back. As he stared up at the night sky, I imagine there was some feeling of excitement at this new sort of adventure, but the text says he felt mostly a deep, aching sadness at having to leave his life behind. It was an odd, conflicted, and contradictory life, but it was his. Now though, he wasn't even the shamed, low-born son of a concubine. He was nobody. He drifted for days and days without seeing a soul. When he ran out of food, he hunted for it. He wandered until he was deep in the wilderness, days from civilization. He started to appreciate the pristine mountains and clean, cold streams. The air was fresh and the scenery was beautiful. He began to think that he could build a house here, that he could build a life here. Then he saw a hollow gourd floating down the river. He guessed that the gourd came from the Buddhist temple, seen as it was a remote mountain region. The government, which was a proponent of Neo-Confucianism, was not a huge fan of Buddhism, but it did allow temples well outside of major population areas. This was one such area. Also, it would promote withdrawal from the world for the monks, in an area conducive to meditation. As we've seen in Japanese folklore, weird stuff tends to happen in Buddhist temples far up in the mountains. Gildong was fairly certain that he hadn't found a temple when he came to a tall waterfall, and even more certain when... After walking behind the waterfall out of sheer curiosity, he found a giant stone door. He pushed at the slick rock, and it slid quite easily inward. As his head rounded the door, his jaw dropped. While he was maybe expecting to see a dragon's den, or a cave full of treasure with body parts hanging from the ceiling, he, instead, saw an entire village. The cave wasn't so much a cave, as the gateway to a massive valley, that was all but hidden from the outside. In the center was a large, multi-story house, and it was surrounded by hundreds of dwellings. The village was deep inside the mountain, but the mountain was a tall and treacherous one. So no one knew that the top wasn't solid, but opened up to allow light in the hidden valley below. Hong Gildong knew immediately he had found the lair of the bandits of tasebek Mountain. Part of me wondered briefly why Gildong entered the lair without reservation. But then I remember that last episode, he was about as afraid of a seasoned assassin sent to kill him as a cat is of a dead mouse. So I suppose Gildan can go wherever he wants. Surprisingly enough, he started to feel, for the first time in years, excited. The world had told him what it thought of him, that he was nothing. He couldn't find an outlet for his ambitions inside the proper channels. But seeing this village maybe he could find one outside the law. He walked through the village until he arrived at the central building to a crowd of hundreds. The bandits were arguing. They had recently lost their leader and seeing as they were a group of thieves, they didn't have a solid succession plan in place. Despite the fact that they weren't really holding open tryouts, Gildong, who by any real reckoning, couldn't have been older than 13 at this point, pushed his way to the front of the crowd he wished to be considered for their leader. The people of the crowd furrowed their brows and cocked their heads. Uh, okay, no? Then, he announced that he was the son of High Minister Hong. He had lived his life in frustration and regret, and now if they put aside the fact that he looked like a kid, and was a kid, and that no one really knew him here, then he would prove he was worthy enough to be their leader. One bandit piped up, Yeah, he does have the appearance of a heroic personage. He could try out. Sidebar, an 11 to 13-year-old looking like a heroic person. Okay, that makes a little more sense than a baby looking like a heroic person, just mere moments after birth. But really, what are these people seeing when they look at this kid? Regardless, there were two tasks. The first, lift a boulder that's over 1,200 pounds. Hong Gildong laughed, went up to it, summoned his wind spirit friend and lifted the boulder before their eyes. Done. Next, he merely had to rob the largest, and most famous Buddhist temple in Korea, full of thousands of monks, wanting to protect the treasures inside. Gildong thought that they might not be able to knock this one out in an afternoon, but he did have an idea. But that would have to wait. The bandits were so impressed that he was able to lift the stone, that they all but made him leader right there on the spot. They laid out their assets for him, and prepared a feast. Then, they learned that this odd little boy had plans for their troop. In a month, the bandits were better trained than the best armies. They had all sworn an oath to each other in Gildong, and anyone who broke it would face military justice. After another month passed, the illustrious son of High Minister Hong rode up to Hasten Temple with 40 servants, almost as well dressed as he was. The monks at the temple were excited. They learned that a high minister's son was coming to visit, to learn from them. This would be a huge honor. And the boy, it seemed, was nice and humble. He would be a joy to teach. News traveled slowly. So they didn't know that this boy was the same one who had left high minister Hong's home months ago. The same night a shaman, physiognist, and a friendly neighborhood assassin disappeared from the capital as well. Gildong said that he would be back later in the month but in the meantime, he requested that no visitors be admitted. Only people that they trusted were to be in this school when he was learning. There were bandits in this area, after all. Later in the month, he brought rice and requested a feast, and made sure that all the monks were not only both overlooking the mountains out back, away from the gates, but that there were ample spirits for each monk to get about two or three drinks a person. Hong Gildong looked up at the sky, the time had arrived. He picked up some dirt, and, using some sleight of hand, tossed it in his food. The party stopped when the boys stood up and yelled that the monks were to be bound. This was an outrage, and beyond shameful. They had made him eat dirt. The nearest government office would learn of this, and the monks would be punished. Now, though, they would be bound. You can probably guess that as soon as the arrowroot vines were tight around the wrists of the buzzed, disoriented monks, they heard news of a massive bandit army, riding from the north. They pleaded with Gildong to let them go, to run, but he only smirked and let the bandits in. When one of his men attempted to cut down a monk, Gildong commanded that he stand down. What was he doing? They were bound, they weren't any harm to anyone. Go and help the others load the treasures. There was a hiccup though, where an acolyte had seen the bandits and climbed the wall, running off to tell the nearby government soldiers. When they arrived, just as the bandits were making their retreat, the government soldiers were met by another 12-year-old acolyte who looked a lot like High Minister Hong, telling them that the bandits went that away way to the south. When he was convinced that the government soldiers had bought it, Gildong ditched the monk clothes, and flew on the wind, because he can fly now, to meet up with his men. Hong Gildong was their undisputed leader after that, and he had even more opinions about how all of this should go. First, he decided to update their branding. He changed the name of their group, ...to Hua Dong. As a quick note, it's the name of the group, but it's also the name of the mountain hideout. It literally means the League of People Who Help the Impoverished. I can imagine the bandits were confused by this. I mean, they were bandits. Impoverishing people was kind of their thing. And if you think about it, it's really the defining characteristic of a bandit. Gildong was firm on this, though. They would now only steal from corrupt politicians and rulers, who squeezed the common people unjustly. They would redistribute the gains back to the common people. The bandits could live under this rule, they said. They could steal and kill for this boy's higher purpose, and not just steal and kill for money. Quickly, not much detail has been given as to the theft of the temple, and they wouldn't have been the traditional targets of Gildong and his bandits. My personal guess is that Gildong obviously knew the bandits were targeting the temple anyway, and they would attack eventually with or without him. When he was leading them, he was able to rob the monks without a single death, either among the monks, the government soldiers, who were mostly common people in this instance, or the bandits. Now that he was in control though, he could decide the targets, and he would turn his focus on the very institutions that had shut him out and shuttered his own path. the governor of Hamyang province had been squeezing the people, and Gildong and his bandits had robbed him. It had been a simple heist, the first since they had robbed the temple, but it presented another problem for Gildong. Unscrupulous politicians and rulers were unscrupulous. They had already shown their tendency for corruption and dishonesty. They wouldn't hesitate to squeeze the common people again in retaliation, to recoup their losses, using the people that were already downtrodden as their scapegoats. Gildong couldn't let that happen. He had to give the royal government a target. He had to give them a name. If you're thinking that this would be an opportunity for him to come up with a super cool alias to fight corruption while keeping his family, who had high positions in said royal government, safe and separate from his actions, yeah, I was thinking that too. But he didn't. The next day, the governor he had robbed found notices all over the city that Hong Gildong was responsible Back in their hideout, Gildong thought about his plan. He wanted to bring justice for the downtrodden, for the whole kingdom. He rushed everyone out of the central house, and moments later, Gildong emerged, gathered 500 men, and left. Then, minutes later, Gildong emerged, gathered 500 men, and left. Then, minutes after that, Gildong emerged, gathered 500 men, and left. He did this eight times in all, one for each of the eight provinces in Korea at the time. Gildong, despite leaving eight times, was still in the central house. Remember, he still knows magic. He used straw to make eight copies of himself, and they were so lifelike that each of them didn't know they weren't the real Gildong. They would lead armies around the peninsula, robbing corrupt officials on behalf of the people. No matter how hard the king tried, Gildong kept slipping through his fingers after that. He had become something of a folk hero, and he seemed to only go after leaders of demonstrable corruption. Still, this sort of thing couldn't be tolerated. The master inspector the king had put in charge of catching Gildong disappeared months ago, and the boy seemed to be a veritable Kwisatz hatterack, seeming to be in multiple places at the same time. One day, he would be leading an army of bandits by the sea, and the next, he would be seen scaling the mountains. The people were rejoicing, and the officials were in terror. The king understood Gildong's motivations, the law was still the law, and he must bring him to justice, and we'll see what finally ends Gildong's reign of terror right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Weebly. Okay, so I've been talking for a while about a Weebly site I'm making, and it will finally be live later on this week. I'll put a link in the show notes and mention it on Twitter when the site goes up. It comes from an idea I had years and years ago that didn't really pan out. I like the name though, and now I'm using it as sort of a literary book blog thing. Right now I'm in the middle of a series of articles talking about how to read a book like an English major. Anyway, as nerdy as that sounds and is, with Weebly, it's super easy to just focus on what you wanna put out there and not have to put a ton of work into designing and creating a functional website. They do all of that for you. They have professional themes, everything is drag and drop, and there's absolutely no coding. So you can focus on writing, videos, pictures, whatever you wanna make a site for, and not have to spend hours building, breaking, and inevitably rebuilding. Everything is fast, professional, and well-designed. Not only that, but you can update and design it from anywhere, at any time. So yeah, if you have an idea you want to put out there in the world, join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free. For free at weebly.com slash myths. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash myths. Weebly.com slash myths. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. Okay, so I've been using Blue Apron for weeks now, and it's opened my eyes to a whole new world of cooking. I've learned about zesting, how to make salsa verde, how to cook a summer squash, what arugula is, the fact that you should take rosemary leaves off the stems before including them in a dish. What I'm getting at is that Blue Apron is phenomenal, because they not only send you all the pre-portioned ingredients that you need for a dish, but they tell you step by step with pictures how to make it, which, for me is super helpful. With Blue Apron, we're not only making awesome meals, but having fun and learning stuff too. So yeah, for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes to make delicious home-cooked meals. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild cod Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com legends. That's blueapron.com L-E-G-E-N-D-S. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com legends. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. The official paid the boy pulling the cart. He and his colleague had to be taken across town, and now, while they rode, they talked about this Hong Gildong fellow. The official's friend was worried. Gildong was apparently a crusader against corruption, and he had taken a lot of food, money, and weapons from the treasuries. The official stopped him. One, maybe don't say that out loud, and two, this Gildong is only going after the worst offenders. Yeah, we've stolen stuff, but we're the only ones who know about our transgressions. We're fine. Besides, what's he gonna do anyway? Merchant army here? There's nothing to take. We've already spent everything. Anyway, we're here, let's go." They paid the boy that had been pulling them and left. That evening, a government inspector showed up at the official's home. Nervously, the official showed him around. The inspector, a young man, sat down to a meal. And at the end of it, when the official was seeing him out, he paused in the entryway. You've been lining your pockets with the income of the common people. I know this, the inspector said. The official scoffed. He didn't know what the man was talking about, but the inspector couldn't prove this shameful accusation. Oh, I don't need to prove it, the man said. You confessed to it today, in the cart, when I pulled you and your friend. And don't worry, I won't take it back, because I can't take it back. Right? It's all gone. The official began to shake. This wasn't an inspector at all. This was the man they were all searching for. This was Hong Gildong. Gildong was standing in the doorway. If the official could just push past him, and out into the street, he could call the soldiers. It would all be over. The official pushed the young man aside, but the official didn't see Gildong's sword until it was halfway in his chest. Gildong was unmoved, and pushing the sword back a few steps, Gildong forced the official back inside and shut the door behind him. A few weeks later, the king received yet another letter from Gildong, with the name and charges of another official that needed to be replaced. This went on for years. When the straw men Gildongs were leading armies, the actual Gildong was using his magic skills and his uncanny ability to disguise himself to gather intelligence on corrupt or cruel officials and, for those that didn't warrant a 500-bandit assault, well, they were dealt with personally by Gildong. Returning to his home province after several visits, Gildong felt he was unstoppable. The chief inspector set against him had been captured and held in the hideout until Gildong and his bandits got him drunk, and he and his men passed out. They then hung him and his men, heavily hung over and terrified but alive, in burlap bags in trees over a cliff on one of the highest peaks in Korea. Gildong learned that they survived, but they would not be coming after him anytime soon, because instead of returning to the king to announce their failure, they decided to take a few months off, and hopefully let this situation sort itself out. Gildong thought back on it. If only the government had let him take the examinations, to become a minister like his father, then he would be working for them, instead of painfully helping them solve their problems from the outside. Like I said, Gildong felt unstoppable. That is, until he saw the notices. His father had been named a criminal and was in prison. His older brother had been appointed as the governor of the area, with orders to catch Gildong in a year, or his family would be dishonored, destroyed. Weeks later, Gildong turned himself in, eight times. Let me back up. When the king learned of Gildong's origins, he immediately and predictably arrested the father and brother, stripped the father of his rank, and threw him in prison. The father was saddened by Gildong's actions, but was even more saddened by his inaction when the boy was in the house. If he had sympathized with his son, and tried to champion his cause as a capable, if low-born young man, then maybe things could have been different. And yeah, things definitely would have been different. The brother pleaded with the king, and had the father reinstated. He took the charge of capturing Gildong. Then, something unexpected happened. News came in from all the provinces all over the peninsula. Gildong had turned himself in, seven times. And that's when Gildong's brother learned that there was a government inspector here to see him. It was only a few minutes of the inspector staring at the brother in the face, until he recognized his younger brother, Hong Gildong, in disguise. The brothers embraced. Gildong's older brother chastised him, but Gildong said he knew. He said he was sorry for what he had done to their family and that the brother should send word to the king that he's captured Gildong, and Gildong would leave in chains tomorrow. Well, this Gildong arrived at the capital at the same time as the seven other Gildongs. All were put in chains and brought before the king, who presumably buried his face in his hands and didn't have time for this at all. all, including the Gildong that surrendered to his brother, insisted that one of the others was the real Gildong. It was Bedlam. And finally, Gildong's father was brought out to determine who was the real Gildong. All eight Gildongs were quieted by the sight of their father, or his father. I'm not sure how the conjugation works in this instance. Anyway, they had to choke back tears, and seeing the once third most powerful man in the government shamed before the king, the father was so anxious about seeing his son that he could barely speak. But finally, he said the real Gildong had a birthmark on his thigh, Torn between his loyalty to his king and to his son, he collapsed in anxiety and began vomiting blood. The Gildongs rushed to him and gave him a powder which instantly cured him. Some Gildongs tended to the father, others stood up and faced the crowd, and still others faced the king. They all said the same thing. Basically, it was Gildongs' refrain about not being able to address his brother as his brother and his father as his father, and feeling the shame that their society had placed on him deep within the marrow of his bones. Now, he had one request for the king. Cancel the order to arrest him, and he will leave the country in three years. The king laughed in their faces. You're not going anywhere. Cancel the order? I've already arrested you. Eight times. Now we just need to check for the birthmark, to see which one of you is the real Gildong. The eight smirked in unison, and collapsed. When they hit the ground... They were piles of straw. None of them were the real Gildong. Everyone was shocked, and when the servants inspected the straw piles and saw that, yes, he was gone, the king flew into a rage, pounded his fist on the throne, and screamed that anyone who brought him Gildong, the real Gildong, could have any position in the kingdom he wanted. Late in the night, a mysterious young beggar was seen penny notices to the outer walls of the capital. In the morning, everyone read the notices. Hong Gildong was asking to be made the Minister of War, a high-ranking government office he would have no doubt been qualified for and earned had he not been lowborn. If he was appointed as minister, he would surrender to the king. Even though it would solve all of his problems, the king dismissed this proposal out of hand. Gildong was low-born. If he allowed someone born of a servant to be his minister of war, even just for as long as it took to catch and execute him, it would set a dangerous precedent. It was revolutionary, and it wouldn't happen. They would catch and kill Gildong without making any deals. Weeks later, they were ready to make a deal. An army of bandits still threatened the countryside, and Gildong, the real Gildong, had presented himself for arrest. Again, and as he was before the king again in chains, the chains fell from him like rain, and he made his demand to be minister of war, and flew away on the wind. It became strikingly obvious that they were not going to be able to catch this man. Worst yet, he was just playing with them. The king called in his ministers and said that, okay, we'll make him minister of war, but after he sees me and accepts the honor, we'll have men hiding outside the palace, ready to stab him with spears until he's dead. It will be public, and everyone will see what happens when you try to hold the kingdom for ransom. The king issued the proclamation. I can imagine Gildong shook when he read it, and he broke down. He had done it. He had achieved the highest office that he would have been able to if he had been born a Minister Hong's true wife. He, the son of a servant, had seen his ambitions fulfilled. Sure, he had to hold a musket to the head of the government, but an office, even a symbolic one, was more than the young boy who grew up so resentful could have hoped for. He donned his best blue cloak, he was going to accept his appointment. The roads were clear for him, as the people looked on in joy, and the government officials in disdain. Here was the mysterious hero, who put fear in the hearts of the corrupt and evil. Now, he had forced the king, the king, to give him a position in the government. He would continue looking out for the people, from the inside, they were sure. They cheered him. He was their hero. The king had only to endure this one meeting with Gildong, but he looked on the young man with both resentment and respect. Gildong stood before the king with his father in attendance. He had dreamed of this day for a long, long time, when he would finally be accepted by his people, when his birth wouldn't be a source of shame. The story doesn't say where the change took place, but I imagine Gildong taking a deep breath and then realizing how small the world was and how, now that he was freed from this obsession about his birth and place in the world, he could experience life. Much in the same way as Arrow Odd, I imagine a peace washing over Gildong as he let go of the past and everything he thought he wanted. Then he realized it was his time to address the king and his ministers. Possibly expecting some long oration about his victory or his sorrow growing up, the king was surprised to hear Gildong apologize. Gildong said that he committed grievous crimes against the kingdom and he deserved to be executed 10,000 times over. But the king had given him a gift that relieved him of his deepest frustration in life, and he would be eternally grateful. His second act, now, after he accepted the position of minister of war, was to give it back. On this day, he was taking leave of the king. He wished him and his ministers, the honest ones that were still alive, that is, long and healthy lives, With that, Gildong whispered something quietly and the wind flew in from the windows and supported him. The doors whipped open behind him and he flew out over the crowds gathered in the capital, over the men with spears ready to kill him and over his childhood home. He was free and there was an entire world out there to explore. This has been pointed out by the translator of the English version of the story but despite Gildong's claims of giving to the poor we never actually see him do it at all. Maybe it was just a bit of misleading PR, or maybe he gave to the poor off-camera, so to speak. But the story never explicitly states that he does so. A year and a half later, Hong Gildong was squinting, trying to find the mountain path. He had been searching for an herb, and he had been a bit too overzealous, when he chanced upon an entire patch of them. He gathered the plants until the sky was nearly dark. Now, he felt like he was on the path, but he couldn't be sure. When he hit the first tree, that's when he knew he was lost. In the past year, Gildong and 3,000 of his bandits and their families left Joseon, or Korea. He was actually beloved by the king now, who realized, too late, how amazing Gildong was. The king gave him thousands of pounds of rice for him and his bandits, and they sailed from Korea toward an island Gildong had discovered on his travels. Now, though, Gildong was once again traveling, and in search of an extremely poisonous herb for their arrows. They were far from Korea and the king's protection, and they had angry neighbors. They would need these for defense. In the distance, Gildong heard shouts and laughing. Since it was either sit in one spot till the first of the morning lights or find out who else was out there, Gildong opted for the latter. He picked his way carefully through the forest. Soon, he saw a firelight and he saw people around a fire except that they weren't people. They were demons. Hundreds of them. Gildong decided to turn around and just sit quietly in the forest until morning but then he heard the screams. Three young women. Gildong sighed. Okay, well it looks like he needs to kill all the demons now. He rubbed some of the poison on his arrows and let three or four fly. Three demons fell instantly, but the fourth, the largest, took an arrow to the shoulder. The others rushed to his aid, and instead of turning and fighting, they picked up the women and fled into the dark forest behind them. Gildong stowed his bow and pulled out his staff, running after the fleeing monsters. Unfortunately, they were faster, knew the forest, and had torches. Even with a wounded demon, they were well out of sight in under 10 minutes. Gildong, once again, found himself in the dark forest alone. Not wanting to walk off a cliff, and really tired of hitting trees at this point, he decided to finally sit quietly in the forest until morning. He woke, cold and damp with dew, Angry with himself for not rescuing the women and killing the demons, he pushed himself up. The demons could be leagues away by this point, and they no doubt knew enough magic to stay hidden. Gildong, though disappointed, resolved to return to his new home, the island of Yule. Then he felt something sticky, almost slimy. His left hand was covered in a type of blood. Gildong looked down and saw gobs of it littering the forest floor and forming a path and the way the demons had gone. He smiled. He had wounded one, and he would follow his blood to rescue the three young women. The wind carried him through the forest for several miles, until he arrived at a tall stone building. It was overgrown with moss and vines, but the whole place looked ancient. Gildon could see two demons standing guard. He had wounded one the night before, but he didn't know how many more were inside. If he attacked, they could bar the door and keep him out, or just flood out and murder him. No, he had another plan. He threw down his arrows, sword, and staff. He took a deep breath and stumbled from the forest. The two demons pointed their spears at the stranger, nearly 50 feet away, but relaxed when they saw that he not only didn't have any weapons, but was grinning like an idiot. They asked him what he wanted. Oh gosh, Gildong said, He was just a man from Joseon, Korea, who practiced the healing arts. He was just out in the forest collecting herbs for his medicines and, wouldn't you know it, got so lost. If you obvious demons could help me find the path again, I would be so grateful. They laughed. This fool didn't know how close he was to getting a spear through the stomach. And probably a spear through several other parts. Yeah, the path is what? Healing arts? Gildong smiled, still grinning. Do you think that you could heal a wound? The demons asked. With almost no information as to the type or severity of the wound, I'm going to say absolutely, Gildong assured the demons. They began beaming. They might have a job for this healer. You see, the ruler took a completely consenting bride, and as they were making their way back here, he was attacked by a poisoned arrow. Giving way too much information to a stranger who wandered out of a forest, they said that the leader had been unable to consummate his marriage, and he was actually dying but now they had found this doctor whose credentials consisted of saying he was a doctor. Everything was going to be all right. They let the stranger inside the wall. Walking along, he saw more strong stone buildings and then a central palace. They directed him into the vast stone fortress, and he passed a room where the leader's completely consenting bride was being held by two friends, friends with whom she was arguing. She wanted them to relax and take a rest. Put her down... Don't worry about the rope and noose attaching her neck to the wooden bar in the middle. They refused, and so they continued to strain under her weight as Gildong passed. Gildong came to the central room and saw the largest demon lying there, his wound festering, with black veins snaking out from it. He looked up and asked if Gildong was a doctor. Gildong said yes. Yes, he was a doctor. Well, good enough for me, the leader said. I'll eat anything you give me, without question, Doc. Gildong pulled some herbs from his backpack, mixed them with some water, and helped his patient drink it. Ten minutes later, the leader was hitting himself in the stomach, which felt like it was on fire. How could eating herbs from a stranger they met in the forest ten minutes ago be a bad idea? Of course, Gildong had given him the herbs that had poisoned him initially, further poisoning him terribly. He yelled out cursing Gildong as he died. Gildong smiled as the other demons, who heard the long and near constant curses, closed in around him. Hundreds of monsters to one. Huh, Gildong was happy to finally have a challenge. He would start with his staff. He reached back, and remembered that he hid all of his weapons in the forest. Oh. The demons saw him grasping at air, pulled out their very present weapons, and rushed him. He was able to command the wind to carry him up through the large palace, mere moments before the sword swipes would have hit him. He rushed through the opening in the ceiling. He'd go get his weapons, come back, then kill all the demons. But he looked down, and saw not a floor full of monsters shaking their fists in a cliché gesture, but a floor full of monsters also riding the wind, gaining on him. He actually began to panic, and pressed on faster and faster. He summoned a tempest in the gray morning sky, thinking that that would slow them down. But he saw it dissipate almost as quickly as he made it because apparently these monsters had been studying magic for 1,000 years. Gildong began to sweat. Maybe, just maybe, he had finally met his match. Except he hadn't. In what surely would be the drawn-out, climactic fight scene in a movie, where Gildong battles a hundred demons in the skies above their forest, them shooting ice, fire, lightning, and wind at each other, as he fights them to the last monster. Yeah, that would be really cool. But that's not what happened. Seeing as they knew magic, he summoned heavenly soldiers, who descended from heaven and restrained the demons. Hong Gildong, not really one to show mercy anyway, ran to his sword and killed each and every demon while they were being restrained by heavenly soldiers. And that's the end of that battle. I've talked about the phrase deus ex machina before, but I don't think I've ever really explained it. It's a somewhat common plot device where some sort of intervention comes from nowhere to solve an unsolvable problem. It literally means God from the machine. And it comes from the ancient Greek tragedies where, to solve an unresolvable problem, a god would appear from on high and be lowered by a machine. Like I said, it's a fairly common plot device, and this seems to be a near-literal example of it. Anyway, after way too much killing, Gildong cut down the woman who was trying to hang herself, and he learned that she and the other two women were from respectable families. Unfortunately, these women don't have given names, just surnames. Yay, early modern literature, so I'm going to call them by their family names. The woman trying to hang herself was Beck, and she was an extremely smart and capable woman. He didn't fly them back out of the forest on the wind. Maybe it was a daily power, I'm not sure. So together, the four hiked from the forest, with Beck and Gildong getting to know each other better and better, and slowly falling in love. Maybe. Maybe. Because this is early modern literature, it doesn't really matter if they liked each other, because Beck's father, Beck Young, had promised her a marriage to whomever rescued her. When Gildong returned with the three women, he was offered her hand in marriage. He accepted, and they became married. The other two women, Cho and Jong, also surnames, found him days later, and they told him that, since he had rescued them, they would never leave his side. They asked to be his concubines, and he agreed. He moved his wife and his concubines' families to his island kingdom of Yule. Now if you're thinking this is a bit hypocritical that you know that he would institute the same policy that led to his own disillusionment, rebellion, and exile, you're absolutely right. It's kind of hard to reconcile and Su Kang wrote a great analysis of this in the version I linked to last week. and to very roughly paraphrase it, he said that it goes to show that Gildong's issue wasn't with the policy, it was that he was affected by the policy as king of his own island he's more than happy to have concubines and make the distinction between children of his true wife and his concubines. Years later, King Hong Gildong sat on the throne of his kingdom, of Anam. He had ventured out from the island once his people were ready and conquered his neighbor, who, rather than fight someone with the abilities of Gildong, committed suicide. Gildong was now awaiting a message from the archives that he wanted to read one last time. It was from the king of Joseon, or Korea, his homeland. He had been back home only once, when he read the stars and learned that his father was dying. He didn't make it back in time to see the man again, but he built him a tomb worthy of a king. And I can imagine that with Confucianism and ancestor veneration, that that would be a very big deal. He took his mother and stepmother and brother back with him, to his kingdom where his father was buried. An aged and powerful monarch, he decided to reach out to the old king in Korea who had once sought after his life. He sent him a memorial to honor him. That was years ago, but sometimes he liked to take the king's message out and read it again. It went as follows. Because of my lack of benevolence, I missed the opportunity of having a great hero like you in my service. You would have been loyal even now, as a person of great importance, a king yourself, you have not forgotten me. Instead, you remembered the old days, and sent a messenger across an ocean, to ask about me. How could I not be moved, by such an act? After reading the letter one last time, Gildong gave it back to the servant, to return to the archives. That had been many years ago. Gildong was now over 60. Kings had come and gone in Korea, and... Now it was time for him, too, to go. He was going to abdicate to his son and go live the life of a holy man in the mountains. The boy that had been born to a serving woman in a world where he would be forever shamed by that had been a student, then a bandit, then a minister of war for about 10 minutes, then an adventurer, a general, and finally, a king. Now, even at the age of 60, he had found himself getting restless again. That's when he knew it was time to give up his throne, pack his bags, and see what was next. The whole kingdom came out to see them off. Gildong's eldest son embraced his father, and his mother, and Gildong and his wife walked down the road toward the rising sun, packs on their backs, toward their next adventure. There's a little more, where Gildong and his wife learned the ways of Taoist holy men, and Gildong's gray hair turned to black again, and his teeth regrew. Then, on a perfect day, where the sky was a flawless blue with clouds of every color, there was an earthquake, and thunder and lightning shook the heavens. Gildong's son rushed to the thatch hut where his parents were living, and found it empty. They were never found, and it's thought that they learned enough ...so that they transcended themselves, became immortal, and supernaturally powerful. So, yeah, just like Yoda. Those are the broad strokes of the story of Hong Gildong. Doing any substantial analysis on the story is well beyond my expertise. But if you're looking for more about this story, I can't recommend enough the Penguin Classics version... It's an excellent version, and it has a wealth of notes and a lengthy introduction that's really interesting. I've linked it in the show notes, and like I said, I only really hit the high notes of the story. And there are many, many more details, so please check it out if you're interested. Next week is an off week. I'm working on a lot of cool things, so I'm going to be taking the week off to work. But we'll be back in two weeks, and we're going back to the very, very beginning of Norse Mythology. And how the first creatures came from a giant's legs and sweaty armpits. I want to say thanks to Tiger New, Lee Stew, Ryan DeWick, Seawords 90 Ricks87, Livia it, which as a Roman history nerd, I love that name, Foxtrot Anonymous, Mantis Toboggan, Julie Hesse, Jackaroo46, Hey Tiny, Brian Hampton, and Dinosaur Germs for their reviews on iTunes. Thank you all so, so much. And yeah, if you'd like to leave a review, iTunes or the podcast app are great places. And you can find the show on there at iTunes.com support.mythpodcast.com There's also a membership thing on the website. For $5, less than the price of a naturally raised Italian queen bee on Amazon, you can get extra episodes and source pack ebooks that won't sting you and leave you out $200 when you swatted them. Seriously, the queen bee is $200 and I have no idea if it's worth it. I don't know anything about beekeeping. Anyway, check out support.mythpodcast.com for more information on the membership, not bees. The creature this time is Cactus Cat. They are, as you can probably imagine, cats. They live in the American Southwest and according to a book written in 1910, frequent the areas between Tucson and Prescott, Arizona. He's no ordinary cat though. His tail is branched and armored and the forearms above his right feet have sharp knife-like bone blades. If you think he uses these to nefarious purposes, then you'd be wrong. He uses his wolverine-like bone claws to go around from cactus to cactus. He'll slash at the cactuses systematically, until sap starts to run, and he'll go in one big circuit. He does this each and every night, until he circles back around to the original cactus, and then it's party time. When he's returned to the first cactus, he will have found that the sap and liquid within have fermented, and it's sweet and very intoxicating. Yep, he laps up the now very alcoholic beverage until he gets drunk. He'll spend the rest of the night running around the desert, scraping his bone claws against one another, screeching in a drunken haze. He'll sleep it off the next day, before going to the next cactus he cut on the following night to find it fermented and heavily alcoholic, and start the party all over again. As a quick note, the cactus cat is a fearsome critter, meaning it's from the tall tales told between lumberjacks, on the frontier wilderness in North America, around the turn of the 20th century. There were ways of explaining things found in the wilderness, and, you know, just coming up with weird stories to pass the time. This one was thought to be an explanation for the puma shrieking in the night, which, apparently, sounds like a house cat on a bender. That's it for this time. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to other music I used in the show notes. And once again, this week's episode was brought to you by Weebly. Weebly was created for people with the courage to start their own business and the dream to be their own boss. And you don't need to be a web designer or know how to code to create a fantastic website. Creating a fantastic website shouldn't get in the way of your dreams. Join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at Weebly.com slash myths. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash myths. Weebly.com slash myths. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.